today's scripture, which comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry, I had like a small annoying cough. So I'm having a cough drop. And uh, when I was like singing, if I got like too into it, I would like start coughing. So uh, I might have to hold back a little bit today. Let's uh, let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for your word and... um, you know, we, there are things that we need to be convicted of. Uh, we need to be convicted uh, of its truth. We need to be convicted of its power. Uh, but we also need to be convicted of its goodness and its beauty. And uh, maybe sometimes when it calls us to do things that are h- difficult and hard and things that our flesh does not naturally want to do, uh, we really have to trust in, uh, in the beauty of who you are to see the beauty of what you say to us. And so during this time, help us to see the goodness of your word and help us to uh, receive it the way uh, you want us to receive it, not simply with our minds, but uh, with our hearts uh, by way of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it is 2019, and you know, for the last two years, what I've done in January is I tried to remind the church about our vision, and uh, <clears throat> if you look at your bulletins, uh, we want to be a kind of church that builds bridges and things like that. Um, one of the bridges that we want to build is we want to build a bridge for people to find a way to belong to a community. So anybody who, you know, steps through these doors, uh, we want to figure out ways in which they can, you know, be welcomed in. And uh, I joined the spiritual family, so to speak. And, you know, basically what I've said in the past is that that requires emphasizing or prioritizing friendship and building friendships. That requires exercising hospitality. That requires things like accountability. And as I look at our church, there are, you know, I think there are pockets of that going on and people are getting together informally, which I think is great. But as I've, I've, as I've been thinking about, I guess, more structurally how our church runs with respect to community life, uh, I'm not sure we have a great way for people to get plugged in. I'm not sure we're great at this building bridges to belong part. And I think we could probably use some improvement in this area. So. Uh, you know, some of us were talking, um, you know, at the last uh, deacons meeting, some of us were just talking about this and say, how do we make some structural improvements in terms of how we can facilitate more of a community life in this church? And what are some of the obstacles in which uh, that hinder people from getting together and meeting together? And, <clears throat> you know, I know a lot of people have young children. Uh, I know people don't necessarily live geographically close together and people are living uh, w- you know, further apart. And I know a lot of people are busy, so people don't have a lot of time. And, you know, we've been trying to do monthly men's groups and women's groups and things like that. And I, I've heard it's been a blessing to those who have been able to participate. 
But I think maybe uh, with the, those groups, you didn't necessarily feel the obligation to, to participate, which is convenient for us, uh, and probably a part of us wants that, but it doesn't facilitate or create a sense of belonging, right? And so we're going to change a couple things up this year. And uh, first, what we're going to do is um, we're going to try to arrange, you know, we're going to kind of go back to community groups, and we're going to try to arrange it by geography. So people who live in Brooklyn, focus on Brooklyn. People who live in Manhattan, focus on Manhattan. Uh, people who don't live in either of those two, like myself, right? You got to pick one of those. Uh, or if you can build up a community in like Queens or Jersey or something like that, you can start something there too. And I think the geographic location part should uh, be an important factor in terms of you know making things a little bit more convenient. Uh, second, we're going to uh, ask some of you to just rotate in hosting. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about this at the end of the message. But, um, you know, uh, as you exercise hospitality, um, maybe you host once or twice, uh, it's probably easier than going to like a restaurant afterwards. Uh, again, especially those with young children. I know going to restaurants can be somewhat of a challenge. And so hopefully meeting in somebody's home will be a little bit easier and encourage people to come out. Uh, third, we're going to meet uh, on Sundays, okay? I talked to a couple people, and it seems like a lot of you don't do anything <laughs> on Sundays after church, so we're going to meet on Sundays, uh, not every Sunday. We're going to do it every other Sunday, so I think by the end, uh, by the time summer arrives, we'll probably have about 10 or 11 opportunities to meet together in these community groups, and uh, hopefully that alleviates the the part where uh, you're just really busy during the week, because I do know many of you are very busy during the week and it's hard to make things. So in order to do this, uh, we're going to need a few things. We're going to need some people to be willing to open up their apartments and volunteer to host. Uh, but I think more importantly, uh, we're going to need people to take these groups seriously and commit to being part of a community, commit to creating a sense of belonging, not just for yourself, but for other people. And that means you have to make it a priority. It has to be important to you. Now, here's, my, uh, here's what I think. I think finding hosts actually won't be that difficult. I think making people view this as a priority in your life will probably be a bigger challenge. So that's what today's message is about. I want you to uh, understand that community life is something that's essential and necessary if you are a believer in terms of your spiritual walk. Now, before I talk about the importance of community, uh, let me just make some observations. This is not spiritual observations. This is not biblical observations. This is just kind of observations that most of which I get from like sociologists and like researchers and things like that about some of the trends that are happening in America. Uh, I, I'm getting a lot of this data from a book that I just read this week. But, you know, on the whole in America, community life is disintegrating. Uh, you might think it's because, oh, it's because of smartphones, because of social media, but actually the trend started before any of that technology uh, came to exist. If anything, social media companies uh, are really capitalizing on the trends by promising to alleviate some of these uh, declines in meaningful relationship by saying, hey, you can have relationship through an online connection. Uh, there's this well-known so social scientist who teaches at Harvard uh, maybe you haven't heard of him, but he's actually pretty famous. A lot of people quote him. His name is Robert Putnam, and he's been, you know, he's been basically studying the disintegration of community uh, and civic participation in America uh, for his, a lot of his career. And so here's what he observes. He says, uh, between 1975 and 1995, participation in social clubs, community organizations, 
plummeted. Uh, a similar decline happened, guess what, in local, locally organized churches. What ended up happening was like mega churches uh, grew, but like these small churches, like a good news church, right, these, uh, these smaller churches declined because you know what happens in a small church? People notice when you're not here, you can't be as anonymous. Um, you can't just attend service and like leave, but somebody's gonna probably say, hey, what's your name, right? Uh, but in these huge mega churches, you can be anonymous and there's an attractiveness to that if you don't want to commit yourself to uh, a, a group of people. So between 1975 and 1999, the average number of times Americans would entertain people in their homes fell from 14 times a year to eight times a year. So hospitality decreased. The average American has gone from having uh, more than three intimate friends to now having less than two. So I think it's like one point something people that you would call confidants, that you feel like you can share deep things with. So generally speaking, the trend in America, both in religious and non-religious uh, spheres, seems to be less devotion to building up community life. Now here's another trend in America and also elsewhere that is growing, and it is the problem of loneliness. Loneliness is not the same thing as social isolation. So it's not the same thing as if you don't have any relationships. You can actually be around a lot of people. You can actually have some social interaction and you can still be lonely because loneliness is connected to uh, a sense of meaning and purpose. It is the deficiency of meaningful relationship in your life. It is the feeling of being disconnected from a community of meaning. Okay, that's how psychologists define loneliness. You know who's the most susceptible to loneliness? It's actually single men. Single men are because uh, you know, there's a, statistically, again, there's a difference between uh, men and women in that men tend not to form meaningful friendships after they start their career or after they get married. Women, on the other hand, continue to form friendships even after uh, career and even after marriage. And so because of that, single men are the most susceptible to suffering from loneliness. Uh, if you remember loneliness, again, is about finding connectedness to a community of meaning. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean um, single people are the only ones susceptible to being lonely, but married people can be lonely as well. If you just think about a marriage where a spouse does not feel an emotional connection to their spouse, uh, sometimes it exacerbates the feeling of loneliness. And nobody would ever know because you say, oh, you're married, you have children, you must not be lonely. You know who else are, is lonely? Uh, leaders oftentimes are lonely. Famous people oftentimes are lonely. Uh, they can have all these relationships with people and still lack meaningful connection. Think about this. You know, this actually su surprised me, but it makes sense. You know, symptoms from, uh, uh, for loneliness and depression are actually very similar. And so, uh, again, what a psychologist says, people get misdiagnosed for depression all the time when in reality, they're just chronically lonely. There's a book called The Lonely American by two clinical psychologists. And they actually think that much of what is called depression is not depression, but it's chronic loneliness. Now, they're not saying that depression doesn't exist and all that stuff, but they're saying usually patients come in and they say they're more comfortable saying I'm depressed rather than saying I'm lonely. And, uh, and then they get prescribed these medications, uh, which is why loneliness often gets confused with a depression diagnosis. So one therapist says this, Number one reason people think they're coming into my office is self-diagnosed depression, 
But most of the time, my conclusion is that the challenge is lack of community and healthy relationships. My fear is that my profession is just prescribing them a medication because that's the easiest path out of the appointment. Again, they're not saying depression is not a real issue. People are depressed and people do need medication and things like that. But maybe much of what we think is depression is not actually depression. Maybe it's loneliness. You know what I was thinking? Like I read these statistics about like pastors. Uh, pastors actually have a high rate of depression. I think it's like 70-something percent of pastors are depressed. Uh, if you're worried about me, I'm okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm depressed. But now I think about it, maybe they're not depressed. Maybe they're just chronically lonely, right? Because pastoral ministry, I can, uh, you know, I can imagine, uh, can be a very lonely thing to do. It's a position of leadership. And maybe, you know, again, this doesn't apply to me. I do see you as my community. But I can see pastors who look at their church, and it's not so much a meaningful community to them. So uh, it's just really interesting way to think about some of the things that are happening in America. Now, the disintegration of community life and the growing problem of loneliness, uh, it's, it's a real concern uh, for governments, right, and health officials. Uh, I mentioned this in a prior sermon, but in the UK, they appointed a minister of loneliness to address the problem in Britain. And in my experience in New York City, I see lonely people all the time. There's loneliness everywhere. Uh, I don't see it as much in people in their 20s because uh, quite honestly, I think that's when it's easiest to build community uh, outside of college. College is probably the super easiest, but uh, in your 20s, you know, you don't have that many obligations. You have work, but you're pretty much free to do a lot of things. But, you know, what happens when you get into your 30s and 40s? Not only may uh, life change dramatically in terms of, like, the dynamics of your life, if you end up getting married, if you end up having children, but, you know, as you get into your 30s or 40s, some of you probably feel this. You just don't have as much energy, right? <laughs> uh, when you're in your 30s and 40s, uh, you're just like less willing to uh, budge to things that make you uncomfortable or things that you don't want to do. Um, you're less willing to move out of your comfort zone, I think, and adjust to other people in order to get to know uh, new people, right? In your 30s and 40s, I think that's what happens. You know, the previous pastor of this church, he would always say, you know, if you can make one good friend in your 30s, then you have accomplish something great and i would say after looking at the data especially if you're a male if you can make one good friend in your 30s then i, I get that you have accomplished something great that pe most people don't do listening to a ted talk that was uh by the way this is a side note nothing to do with my message i feel like so free because you know the fall was incredibly busy for me i had like you know sermons bible studies and then school uh, to like prepare, but my paper's done. <laughs> That's off my shoulders. We, we don't have Bible studies, so uh, I've been able to do a lot more uh, reading for the sermon. <laughs> so I was listening to a, to a TED Talk. <clears throat> and uh, again, not coming from a Christian perspective, but it was addressing the problem of loneliness. And the speaker said something interesting about how to alleviate the problem of loneliness and the, the way you alleviate the problem of loneliness, not through social media, not through playing golf, not even by getting married, not through medication. You know what she suggested? She said this, ritual. Interesting, right? Ritual. Again, not talking from a religious perspective, but she is borrowing, I think, from religion and redefining ritual to fit into a secular narrative, but nevertheless, I think she sees something. She says ritual is basically repeated action plus intention. 
There's an intentionality and there's a repetition in ritual. And in order to build meaningful social connections, you have to meet people over and over and over again. Now again, I think a lot of us, maybe we won't say it, but in our hearts, and especially, I think, I look at our church, we have a lot of introverts, so especially for introverts, maybe you don't like that, maybe you don't want to do that. You know, meeting people is hard, right? It's awkward, sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it just requires a lot of work to keep the conversation going. Uh, people usually want the fruit of community and that meaningful connection without putting in the work, which is why you see people like jumping around from different churches because they're, they wanna find community rather than try to build it. But that's why you have to also have intentionality about it because our natural impulse, especially with the trends of what's going on in American culture, our natural impulse is not going to be to get plugged into a community and to participate in building it because it's hard. But you see, more than the benefits of social capital, Robert Putnam phrase, uh, more than the benefits of physical health, uh, more than the benefits of emotional health, in terms of the importance of community life. Look, I'm a pastor, we're in church. There is an essential spiritual necessity to being part of a community, okay? I heard this great illustration, it comes from Tim Keller, and he says this. There's a difference between an aggregation and a congregation. An aggregation is a collection of individuals who come together for an event and listen to a speaker. So somewhat like what is going on right now, this is an aggregation. Uh, there's not much interaction between one another, but you're all basically individuals in the same place. A congregation, on the other hand, is a collection of individuals who are organically connected to one another. An aggregation, this is Tim Keller's uh, illustration, I think it's brilliant. An aggregation is kind of like a bag of marbles where you have like these individual marbles and they're in the same bag, but they're ultimately detached from one another. If the bag breaks, boom, right? All the marbles can go their separate ways. A congregation, it's like a cluster of grapes where all the grapes are organically connected to each other. If something happens to the cluster, the rest of the grapes are in it too. There are a lot of aggregations in the world and you can even approach church like an aggregation where you just attend service, you do your religious duty and you don't bind yourself to anybody, to any person, to any community and you go off on your way. But you know the Bible, when it describes a church, it doesn't describe it simply as an aggregation. It describes it as a congregation. And you have this picture from 1 Peter, and it's a picture of living stones being built together, right, to build up the spiritual house of God. And even in that picture, there is an interconnectedness. Now, I would imagine a lot of people, again, like the idea of that, but it's hard to put in the effort and the time and the energy to try to build that. Um, if you're an introverted type, then you probably get really worn out when you're with people, right? And you just need to recharge sometimes. Uh, I think we have a lot of people with young children, and if you have young children, that's going to be hard too and present more challenges in terms of meeting up. We live in an urban area uh, in New York City, and there's problems associated with that. There's problems with transportation. There's problems with space. There's problems with maybe lack of parking. I get that. And I know that there are a lot of good reasons to not meet together. But let me say this. At least nobody's persecuting us, right? <laughs> At least we're free to meet together. At least there's no outside pressure that is hindering us from meeting together. 
Because the reality is, there, is a, there are situations like that in the world. Take China, for example. Why do you think house churches have to meet in secret? Because the government probably wants to break some of these churches up. And that's probably similar to the situation that's going on to the community in Hebrews. And, you know, it's not entirely clear why people stop meeting together. Scholars think that maybe some of the Jewish Christians were being pressured by other Jewish people saying stop meeting together with those Christians and that pressure may have come in the form of social pressure or something a little bit more intense. But the author of Hebrews is saying this, uh, you still need to meet together. Even if you're being persecuted, even if there's outside pressure to not meet together, you still have to meet together. Let's turn to our passage. There are three exhortations here and you can see it signaled by the phrase, let us. So in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And finally, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, these exhortations are ultimately meant to be a response to what is written in the previous chapter, which is basically talking about how Jesus is the great high priest whose sacrifice is better than any sacrifice from the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. And you see that in our passage too. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus since we have a great high priest. If Jesus' blood made a way for us to know God, to be in his presence, what should we be doing? That's where the exhortations come in. First, we should be drawing near to God. We can call that the worship or the devotional aspect of the Christian life. Second, we should be holding fast to our confession without wavering. We can call that the, maybe the believing part where we persevere in holding on to the promises of God. Finally, we should be considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, and we should be encouraging one another. Now, I want to spend most of our time looking at that last exhortation, and then I'm going to circle back and talk about the first ones. Now, in verses 24 to 25, uh, what it does for us is it shows us what we should be doing in community, okay? So meeting together is something that we should be doing, but outside of meeting together, as we meet together, what are we supposed to be doing? The first thing we should be doing is we should be considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, in the West, uh, we have this orientation where we feel like what other people do is like none of our business. And communities, uh, but communities did not always function in that way. If someone was in trouble or if someone wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing, people in the community would get involved. It wouldn't be like, oh, you know, none of my business. It's their private life. You know, even when it comes to children, by the way, Robert Putnam, that social scientist, he says attitudes have changed so much, even in the way we speak. So back in the day when people said, we need to get a pool for our kids, you know what they meant by that? They meant we need to get a pool for the kids in the neighborhood. Today, when people say, we need to get a pool for our kids, you know what people mean by, by that now? We need to build a pool in our backyard for our two or three kids or four kids or however many kids you have in your household. Being part of a community means we should be considering how to stir one another up towards love and good works. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is this, the verb to stir. Uh, it's actually, you know, I looked it up in the, the Greek lexicon. It's a little bit more forceful than giving like a nice reminder. Hey, you should love and do good works. Um, it, you know, it can actually also mean like to provoke or to uh, agitate or to irritate. <laughs> now, I've talked about accountability in the past and I've said, you know, a lot of people don't have it and probably a lot of people don't really want it. Uh, real accountability is something that's going to provoke you. 
It's probably going to agitate you. Uh, who likes getting critiqued? Who likes having personal sins pointed out to them? Nobody. But that's how growth happens. That's how you grow. Community is supposed to be irritating. And uh, if people are provoking you towards kingdom living, then they probably will irritate you a little bit, right? <laughs> if they're challenging you. Now, there's a, uh, another sociologist named Robert Bella, and uh, he says something interesting. He's like, you know, the only kind of groups that are growing in America are support groups. That's the only area where uh, communities are growing. And he says the reason why is because, you know, in support groups, there are very minimal demands made on the member, and the group is primarily oriented around the individual. So it kind of becomes like this group therapy. Uh, let, let me just listen to your problems instead of agitate you or irritate you or speak into your life. That's not the kind of community that the, the author of Hebrews is actually talking about. Biblical community doesn't make minimal demands. Biblical community should make high demands on you. And the high demands are this. You should care enough for one another that you prioritize meeting together, that you are able to stir or provoke one another to love and good works, that you should care for people enough to do that. Now, if we did that all the time, community would be horrible, right? It would be lousy. So here's the third thing. We should be encouraging one another. Now, there has to be a balance, and uh, you know, a community uh, is not all about, all about right, pointing out uh, one another's flaws and sins and things like that, but community is where also you want to draw great encouragement from. Uh, I had a conversation with this about someone recently, and uh, he made this observation, but he was like, yeah, I don't see people uh, encouraging, like giving any words of encouragement uh, anymore. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, I guess, yeah, that could be true, you know? Now, what does that mean? You know, when someone is going through a tough time, a, a word of encouragement can help. And uh, what does that look like? It could be like this. Yeah, I know you're having a tough time. I know it's tough now. But, you know, I see you're looking to God for strength and wisdom. And so I think you're on the right track. And just, come on, keep going. Stay the course. And I know God's going to be able to bring you through it. That's a word of encouragement. Uh, or if God has used somebody to bless you in their lives, I think it's really encouraging to tell them and say, uh, I've, you know, I've really seen God's hand work in your life. God has used you uh, to bless me and to build me up. And again, it's not to say you're such an amazing person, right? That's not the point of the encouragement, but it's really to say this is what God is doing and I just want you to be aware of it and you should be encouraged by it. Um, you know, just a personal note, it's like some, some of the folks in the church, some of the uh, elders and deacons and a few other folks uh, got my family uh, a very generous gift and wrote notes of encouragement. And I was actually surprised by my, um, how touched I felt because uh, I don't usually get super touched by that, but I was like really touched by that. <laughs> and uh, I was like really encouraged by that. And I was, um, yeah, it, it makes a difference, right? It makes a difference in terms of perseverance and walking the course that God is calling us to walk. I imagine there are people, uh, again, who don't necessarily want this vision of community because high, exp high demand, a lot of work, put yourself in uncomfortable situations that you don't want to be in. Right? It's hard. But more than that, and this will relate to the next sermon series, I think people will be scared. I think fear plays a big factor in building community. Why? Fear is a powerful force. And uh, if you think about community, what are some of the reasons why we might be afraid of community? 
you know, community is where you feel rejection. Community is not great all the time. And rejection, sometimes we're afraid of being rejected. Uh, what if people don't warm up to you? What if you share something and you make yourself vulnerable to somebody and they don't respond the way that you want them to? What if people don't understand your struggle? Even worse, what if people end up judging you for your struggles? What if I try to stir someone up towards love and they respond to me in anger? That's another form of rejection, isn't it? And you see, the vision of community, it's not promising that none of these things won't happen, but even if these things do happen, it's still possible to be part of this kind of community and it's still um, necessary to be part of this community and it's still good to be part of this community. Why? And here's where we circle back because of what it says in the beginning. What does it say? It says this, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then it gives the exhortations, let us, right? Let us, let us, let us. Why is community possible? It's possible, first of all, because of what Jesus did through his sacrificial blood on the cross, a sacrifice that was better than any other sacrifice. Why does that make a difference for community? It means this. God has already been a host for us, and God has already invited us into his community. And it's not on the basis of who we are, but it's on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And therefore, we can be confident that God has accepted us. Therefore, we can draw near to God with the full assurance of faith, knowing that our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed. We draw our confidence and assurance not from the opinion of others, so if other people reject us, it's all good because God has welcomed us in, sinners, into his very presence. And that's important. When we, when we talk about fear, there's no magic solution. Uh, fear, the way we overcome fear is basically we trust God and we trust that he is with us in a nutshell. That's how we overcome fear. This is what I think the author of Hebrews is also alluding to. God is with us. He invites us into his presence and therefore all the things that we're afraid of in community, the judgment, the rejection, whatever it may be, uh, we won't be destroyed by it because we have great acceptance in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, this past summer, I was talking to the missionary, and uh, I told, I was, you know, we were just like having casual talk, small talk, nothing deep. And I was like, you know, when I was in seminary, and he was a military man, so we we're like talking a little bit about military and stuff. And I was like, you know, when I was in seminary, uh, I, I thought about being an army chaplain, and uh, I thought about doing ministry in the army. And uh, because he has some background in the military, he was like, you know, I could see you actually being a chaplain. I think he's trying to encourage me to consider chaplaincy now. I was like, no, that ship has sailed. <laughs> I'm not going to join the army now. But <laughs> um, he was like, he's like, yeah, I, I can see you actually being a chaplain because, uh, you know, soldiers, they're always being pushed by the superiors, like always push, 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 push. And they need some reprieve from that. And army chaplains can make them feel like safe and feel some rest. And he was like, you know, I think you, uh, your personality type, uh, you know, I push too much, but your personality type, I think you would make people feel uh, safe and at peace. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because it's not in my personality, I think, to push people and challenge people, but I feel like I have to now. <laughs> I feel like I have to start. Uh, 
I need to push this church. You got to make community a higher priority in your life. And I know why it's hard. I'm living it too. I know why it's hard. I don't want to like meet with people all the time. Uh, I know it's important though, right? But I was like thinking, why, why am I like so afraid to like push? Um, and I'm not afraid to push because I think like, you know, you won't like me. Uh, I'm not afraid to push because of like any of that, those reasons. I, and I, I found the answer. You know why I'm afraid to push? I'm afraid to push because I'm worried I might be wrong. Uh, what if I push you in a direction and it's like a wrong direction, right? <clears throat> That's my fear. But, you know, if I am, I got to trust God. And I got to trust that God's going to use you to correct me, right? So let me push. And if I need correction, you correct me. But that's community life. That's what it should look like. So that said, we're going to try out this new structure for 2019. And uh, we're going to try it out until the summer and see how it goes. And as I said before, that means there's going to be about 10 to 11 opportunities to meet together. Uh, We're going to focus on geographic location. So Brooklyn folks will meet in Brooklyn. Manhattan folks will meet in Manhattan. And what I want you to think about is, first, can you host? Do you have the means to host? Do you have an apartment to host? How many times can you host? If you live with somebody, talk it over with that person. And next week, we're going to start having people sign up to host. Uh, Think about this, too. Is your place kid-friendly? Now, all the groups don't have to be kid-friendly, and I think that's okay. In fact, I think it'd be great to have at least one group that is not kid-friendly because when kids are going to be there, uh, it's probably going to be more of a challenge to do, like, deeper things and do, like, like I don't know, a lot of prayer or, like, Bible studies and things like that. So uh, one group without kids I think would be great. But if you are willing to host next week, there'll be opportunities to sign up. After we get a list of hosts, we'll start organizing things and see like where people go. But again, here's the goal. I want everybody here, right? Whether you go to like two of these meetings, whether you go to like 10 of these meetings, I want you to feel like this is where I belong. And people in that group take some ownership of one another saying, oh, this person's sick. Mm. Let me take ownership and try to reach out and help this person. You know, I think what happens in, as groups get bigger, you know, something happens to a person, like everybody's thinking, oh, this person will reach out or this person will reach out, and then at the end of the day, nobody ends up reaching out. So at, at least now, I think structurally, right, structurally, um, what I want to do is I want to create bridges to belong. And I want to be better at community life. And I think, that, I think it'll be hard I think it'll be challenging. I think we'll be tempted to not uh, go many times. Uh, I think some of the meetings may be a drag. I think a lot of, sometimes it'll be awkward, especially if you don't know people there. But I think if you make it ritual, right? Repetition and intent, uh, I think there'll be a moment where you feel like, I belong. Especially if belong is not based on common interest, but it's based on something deeper, which is faith in Jesus Christ. So let's get there. Let's go there. Um, it's, it's an attitude adjustment. Make it important to you. Adjust your schedules on Sundays if you have to, if you can. Make it important. Let's pray.